If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Jonathan Kimmett. Uh, I'm excited to be here today. Kim is in Los Angeles. She's been working at a, a FutureCon event um, for the last couple of days. And from the pictures on LinkedIn, it looked like it was a great turnout. There's a lot of people. They had some great speakers. They had you know some great topics. So Kim has graciously let me come into the show today, and I'm really hoping I don't mess it up too bad. So be kind to me, ask lots of questions, and you know hopefully we'll have a good time. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're happy that you've joined us. If you uh, would like to hear other episodes of the AM Security for All, uh, you can find us, the episodes on Voice America on the Business Network, and you can listen on any of your favorite podcast tools. If you've been paying attention uh, over the last uh, several weeks, you know, recent news, you know the cybersecurity threats is in front and center of, of everything we're doing. Um, uh, with current news and current events that's happening, you know, it's even more important that we think about cybersecurity and how that's affecting us here in the, our organizations. So because of that, I've asked Andrew Lemon to join us today so that we can talk about some of the things that he sees as a principal security engineer at Alias. Um, before he was that, he was a senior security analyst for Sonic Drive-In, and before that, he was a senior network engineer for McAfee and Taft. I've known Andrew for many years now, and we've always had a great time when we get together. Um, I, I think you guys are going to enjoy the, the the questions that we've got for him and some of the topics that we're going to talk about. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Um, how are you doing today? Hey, Jonathan. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. I uh, uh, when I uh, when I got the opportunity, when Kim asked me to uh, to come in and take over for her for a day, I uh, I knew that I really wanted to get you in so we can you know, talk about. We've had some great conversations, and I think everyone's going to enjoy those conversations. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, real quick, Andrew, tell us who you are. Uh, give us a little bit of background. You know, what do you what do you do? Um, you, you work for Alias. You know, kind of give us some background on what you do. Yeah, uh, I kind of want to start from the beginning because. A lot of people get into security and they think, well, okay, I need a career. What do I do? Uh, I make a lot of money in security. Um, it's not so much the case, especially when you want to perform at this level. You need to have that drive and that want. Uh, everyone that we hire on the team wants to be here and is just so passionate. Uh, so my career in security started, I mean, many years ago. My dad was a Novell admin, uh, and I remember him studying for his MCSE and our first computer being a DOS, like 3.0 and 3.5. And my dad, like where most kids' dads, like read them bedtime stories and corduroy. Uh, my dad read me the MCSE manuals. Uh, <laughs> and then starting about the age of 11 on, uh, I was asking my dad, like, hey, can you tell me how to work out this batch file? I was helping him with deployments. And I remember one of the first things they asked was, well, can you blow up a computer with a virus? Uh, so I've always been interested in like the malicious actor uh, and always dreamed of building that path to become an attacker or how could I leverage that to help people? If you'd ask 11 year old me or 16 year old me, what do you want to do? I would tell you that I wanted to legally break into buildings and rob banks and hack into networks. And now at 30, that's what I do. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Now I've got to ask when you were doing all that coding, cause I've got young kids, 
how how do I get them interested in that? I mean, I've kind of introduced them a little bit to security and computers and coding, but what was it that really triggered it for you? What was it that you found really exciting about doing that stuff? Uh, first, my dad taught me that I could alias commands. So I wanted to play Goodbye Galaxy. That was my game at the time. Yep. And I wanted to make it Andrew or Andy. And so I could just type Andy on the keyboard and that worked. And then I could okay. play with things where if I wanted to mess with my brother because it was his turn, I could do a shutdown dash S dash T and then 3600. So three minutes after he got into the game, it would immediately crash. <laughs> uh, and I still have my old DOS book actually sitting on the shelf and still earmarked uh, with everything in it. Oh, that's great. That's great. I uh, see. I grew up kind of the same way. You know, we had uh, an old uh, we originally had a 286 and then a 386 and a 486. My first computer that I had was a 48650, I think, uh, that I got in college. And, uh, you know, learning those things, learning that stuff right there, it was fun. Uh, but as I think back about it, I, I really I, I try to figure out why it was fun for me. Um, in trying to get my kids involved in doing that stuff. I want to make it fun for them. Uh, I even, I was going to get my, my, uh, all of my kids really like computer games and such. Um, but uh, I wanted to give them the old MUDs, um, you know, the, the old game, you know, command line games, you know, give them into that so they can, you know, have fun on that. Number one, so they can be aware of it and they, they know that those things existed. And number two, have a good time with it. So, well, that's great. Um, how did you, uh, now, getting into, you know, you were a network engineer and you otherwise kind of moved into pen testing. How did that happen? What was the process there? Yeah, there's a piece of career advice that I give everyone. And uh, if no one listens to anything else that I say, if you want to be successful, this is the most important thing to listen to. And that is when you're like an exchange admin and you move jobs, what you're going to find is that the exchange server is probably in disarray and you do what's comfortable to you. So you immediately start doing exchange again, and eventually you become the exchange guy. Uh, so what I did was I positioned myself with everywhere that I went to be the guy I wanted to be. Uh, every new career path that I came in, I said, hey, I know some pen testing stuff. Can I try this? I know some of this stuff. Can I test yep. this? And instead of doing what I always did and staying in my lane, I decided to, well, yeah, I know that. I know what you hired me for, but what I'm actually going to do is this. And I, in essence, got to write my own roles. Uh, yep. Most people don't actually know what you're going to do. And so that's what I did. I uh, just wrote my own roles. That was my transition from network admin to security. I said, hey, I know some of this stuff I have, from 16 to 24 in that range. I mean, I'd always been hacking and breaking things. So as a network admin, well, did that patch work? Let's actually validate and test it. Uh, do we have good network segmentation? Let's actually validate and test it. It was way better and way cheaper for me to convince my boss and say, hey, I'm going to fire uh, this exchange exploit against our network because one, I'm the guy that's going to fix it. I can do it off hours. And two, I can validate it as opposed to you having to pay someone to do it. I'm already here. Let's just get the use out of it. Yeah. You know, I, uh, as a CISO, I actually look for, you know, staff that's in, um, networking or help desk or systems that, that demonstrate that sort of, those sorts of abilities, and I've got two right now. Uh, I'm not going to share their names. I got two right now that I'm uh, I'm hoping to bring into the security team because they've they've got that curiosity, they've got that that mindset and that you know that thought process that you know I would love to uh, bring them in and you know get them into the security side because I think there's a lot of value there. So I, I agree 100. percent You know when someone really shows that sort of 
uh, puts that effort in and they show that that attitude of doing that, you know, going that above and beyond, especially on the security side, it's really, really helpful. So that's great. So uh, for those who are in the uh, in the chat, um, you know, please throw your questions at us. I'll I'll make sure and work those in. um, And uh, and I really hope we can get some good questions here for Andrew. So uh, talk to me about your your current role as a uh, uh, there at Alias. Tell me about it and tell us what you do. Yeah, so I started out as uh, one of two engineers, and um, since starting with the company, went from a team of five to about 25. Uh, so I built out the process that we use for incident response, uh, the tooling that we use, and from there moved into helping select the team that's helped us move forward, and then selecting who would actually lead, or helping select who would lead that security team, and now I've moved into kind of the advisory role. So while my title is principal security engineer, there's a caveat where I'm also the head of R&D, which is reconnaissance and destruction. My whole job, uh, no matter what happens, what's going on, uh, my whole job is to figure out new TTPs. And no one, the great thing about Alias is uh, we have entrepreneurial spirit. Anytime I've said I've wanted to do something, someone's like, go for it, run with it. Uh, when I was like, hey, I like Fortinet firewalls, they're like, great, let's partner with those guys. Or hey, I like this AV, like, all right, let's figure out how to do that. No one has been a, a limit to me, which has been a, a major reason. Uh, that's been a great way to keep retention, right? Uh, yep. So my daily task is figure out new TTPs, whether that's generating uh, new content for presentations. So I might spend the whole day on Shodan uh, browsing traffic cameras and then figuring out, is there an exploit for this? Um, I may spend the whole day just uploading malicious files to our file share to see if I can get credentials to get shared across automatic, uh, automatically. Uh, or it's a new incident response thing. I'm tearing apart malware, um, following all the new ransomware actors, bolstering our research uh, efforts to see like how do we actually look up uh, who got hit with ransomware or what TTPs are they using now? And what kind of guided me to that role was at DEF CON, um, I'm an introvert. So when I was at DEF CON, I was like, okay, you can only drink and hang out with hackers for so long. So I kind of just went out and did my own thing. And at the same time that DEF CON was going on, the Conti ransomware actors, they dropped all their files. Uh, an affiliate had gotten burned and they dropped all their files. And so I started tearing that apart. And then our CEO seeing that I had that affinity for wanting to like dig in and use these TTPs, figure out what they did, uh, kind of moved me into this role and said, okay, here, I'm moving you away from engineers and your whole job is um, research. And anytime someone needs something, they'll reach out to you. So I oversee forensics if something happens, but someone runs that daily. Um, if there's a pen testing issue, someone's stuck on a pen test and like, man, I can't get domain admin. I'll drop in or remote in, grab domain admin, hand it to them, and then I parachute out and go work on the next problem. Uh, so it's a nice mix. I love being on fire, and it's definitely enabled me to be on fire more. Uh, I don't really function well in uh, single-threaded mode. I have to be hyper-threaded and doing 100 things. Right. And, you know, and that really is the benefit of, you know, what you do in incident response and IT security in general. I mean, we're we're always on fire. You know, we're always trying to find a problem, fix a problem. Um, you know, it, it takes a break fix into a whole new realm on what you do. I mean, you um, the way I, you know, coming from a CISO side, you know, when I when I interact with you, when I talk with you, I know that, you know, I bring you in um, to to break my systems, to see what you can break. 
Um, and then from that, it gives me a direction I need to go to make my systems better. Uh, so, uh, I, I think that's a, it's a, a great opportunity for, uh, you know, for the people who have that sort of mindset, who really want to do some good things and really want to do some, and have that interest, you know, that interest from when you started all the way to, you know, what you do now. I mean, I could definitely see that path, you know, of, of, of expertise and experience helping you in what you do now. So we, we really got to, you know, I know we, uh, we talked about some of the things that, you know, I would ask you and this one was not one of them, but one of the things that I think over the last week, you know, we have seen is this increased, um, uh, threat, um, on networks and on systems, you know, because of the, uh, the issues happening on other parts of the world. And I certainly don't want to get into any of that, but, you know, what are what do you what are you thinking about? You know, I know what I'm thinking about because that's all I'm thinking about. I'm not sleeping or doing anything for the last few days. Um, but from your experience, what are you seeing that you are particularly concerned about, or that you really um, you're thinking differently about because of what's happening in the world? You know, as it relates to organizations and their cybersecurity posture. Yeah, one thing that I'm seeing and that. Something that's guaranteed to happen is it's not going to be a known exploit that takes whatever down. It's going to be a zero day. And so how do you fight a zero day? Um, you really can't. So you have to do your best with what are your mitigating factors. And so the, the thing that I'm seeing and the things that I'm recommending to our customers, first and foremost, is good offline tested backups. Like I, I can't drill that in people's heads enough. Not online backups. Like clone your Veeam server with Veeam and then offline that thing, and then throw it on a hard drive and throw it in a security deposit box. Uh, but further to that point is attack service reduction. Uh, we know attackers are going to come in through VPN, uh, or they're going to leverage software that's making calls out. So good egress filtering, uh, good ingress filtering. So minimize attack surface coming in, take down old websites that are worthless, egress filtering out. I mean, should anything besides 443 get out uh, to the internet? Um, and then from my side, the thing that I've been playing with is actually digging into infrastructure. Um, this week, I've been into looking at ICS systems. Uh, Shodan's one of the ones that one of the main platforms I use. But looking at just how many ICS systems and industrial control systems and critical national infrastructure is available on Shodan, and not just that, but with no authentication required to get in through like a VNC session. That's absolutely terrifying to me. Um, that's the things that keeps me up at night. And I definitely make sure to check my home state and uh, provide any anonymous feedback I can where I find that because that uh, I want to have water tomorrow and I'd like to have electricity tomorrow. So if I can make sure to shore up those defenses any way I can, I'm happy to. Absolutely. Now for our audience, let's uh, let's go back just a little bit and let's define some of those terms. So tell me in your own words, what's a zero day? You know, if you had to explain that to a CISO or a C-level person or even just kind of a, a regular non-tech person, what's a zero day? Gotcha. I appreciate you circling back because a lot of times I go up here and completely forget my audience. So <laughs> yeah, feel free to wrangle me back. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a zero day is that exploit you haven't seen yet. It's the nation state actor, it's highly complex vulnerability that has not been fired in the wild and doesn't have a patch for it. Uh, we see those commonly deployed in these type of operations and then leveraged multiples at a time. Uh, for example, and I hate to always reference this because it's always referenced, but it's the only thing we have, Stuxnet had yep. seven zero days in it. 
And to be able to burn a zero day, I mean, those things run anywhere from $200,000 to a million plus on the open market. To burn seven of them in a single organization, um, it kind of narrows down who could actually orchestrate right. the whole thing. And right. then on top of the zero days, you have your day ones. So the CISA, which is the basically the U.S. body that governs and says, hey, um, here's what you should patch. And there are cybersecurity, I guess, police or uh, advisors. They, they advise against day ones, which are the exploits that have just come out that now that they're familiar, people are seeing them, they're proof of concepts out there and people are starting to exploit them. Those are the day ones that you'll also see leveraged in addition to zero days. Yeah, for the, the CISA, for those who are, are listening, uh, it's a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency at CISA.gov. And they've got some really good materials out there for organizations, cybersecurity professionals, and just regular users about how to protect themselves, how to protect against those uh, those vulnerabilities out there. So I, I would encourage people to at least take a look just to make sure you're, you're kind of doing as much as you can to be aware of what's happening out there. Um, the other one I wanted to to ask you on is Shodan, you know, Shodan.io. You know, tell us a little bit about what that is and how you use it, just so that people, because I think this is really good for people to know that it exists and so that they can use it to protect their own organization. So Shodan is a, uh, it's a platform that goes out and does active scanning. It's basically just a giant index of the internet, but it's indexing on every port all the services, it'll grab screenshots where it can, whether that's a logged in RDP or a VNC session, uh, or even RSTP, which is the real-time streaming protocol on webcams. Uh, so Shodan goes through and it categorizes these. I use Shodan a ton for passive reconnaissance. A lot of times I don't want to burn an IP address when I'm doing scanning, or I want to look at something, but maybe I don't want to touch it. Um, I'd rather have someone else do that. Shodan is uh, this tool that actually goes through and we pay for a premium subscription that lets us look at IP addresses or filter by nets or by uh, ASN numbers. So we can actually grab an ASN for an ISP and then see everything associated with that. Or you can filter by country. It's really granular searching. Uh, one thing that I also like to do is search on the hash of the fave icon, which is a great way to determine vulnerable software. If you have different hashes for different fav, different versions of a fave icon for like a firewall, you can find vulnerable version versus not. Uh, so Shodan is just this incredible, powerful tool that lets you passively scan and do reconnaissance without ever having to put hands on a keyboard or create a connection from your machine to theirs. Yeah, I'll tell you, I use Shodan, you know, I'm going to say every day, not quite every day, but almost every day. I uh, I use it. I, I look at our own network, so IP addresses that are associated with the University of Tulsa. And I go out there and scan because I want to know the number of machines that are available out to the internet, you know, outside of our firewall. And, and if that number changes, you know, I can tell you the number right now because I looked it up for a, a board meeting yesterday. And uh, if that number goes up or down of how many IP addresses are available to be scanned, uh, then I start getting concerned, you know, and I want to go figure out why. Why Why? Why did we have 10 extra machines hop on, you know, outside the firewall? You know, why Why did we lose X amount of machines? So it, it's a really good tool. And it's good to allow people to keep up to date on what an attacker might see on the outside of your network. 
network, you know, how many machines, how many printers, how many cameras, how many NAS devices, you know, all these different things. So it's a really good idea to keep, you know, however you do it, whether you're using something like Shodan or if you're doing outside scanning or whatever, to get an idea of exactly how many machines are available outside the network. We also use it to do uh, like DNS leaks or uh, NetBIOS leaks. You have no idea how common NetBIOS leaks are that actually give us all your internal information on port 135. Yeah. Uh, we use facet analysis to see uh, what Windows services could be available. Yeah, it's uh, it really comes down to if you the more you know about a network, the more you know about an organization the easier it is to find some vulnerabilities. Um, and that could be a, a software vulnerability. It could be a process vulnerability. You know, it could be a variety of things. If you know how things are set up, maybe it's just a social vulnerability. You can call someone and ask them a question. And because you know that information, they might trust you more. You might give them confidence that you are someone that needs to know that and will give you even more information. So it's a... It's really good to understand what your network is doing and how you are being seen out in the world. So, it's uh, those are those are some some great tools. Let's talk a little bit about your experience in um, uh, pen testing and you know testing the security of organizations. Uh, what do you think? You know, kind of looking back um, at all the pen tests that you've done. You know, from when you were just starting on computers and pen testing them and hacking them all the way to now, what are those big ones that you say, Hey, the, this is going to work every time, or this is probably going to work every time. What are those, what are those pieces that you go? That's, that's going to be, that's going to be in my bag of tricks because it always works. Yeah, there are a lot of them. Um, I always leverage old protocols. So uh, MDNS or LLMNR, those almost always work. Uh, it's gotten a little, Windows has started patching it, but LLMNR is guaranteed. That's the link layer, multicast, network, something or other. Basically, it's the failback for DNS. We will actually poison that and grab hashes all the time and then start leveraging past the hash attacks. Uh, they thought going from NT or LT to NTLM and then NTLM V2 would prevent that. Uh, now with the advent of modern day GPUs, uh, passwords don't really stand much of a chance, especially just knowing human nature. So those are one of the, the main ones that I love to use is the responders, the tool that I use uh, for poisoning. And then those simple attacks attacking the old protocols. It's almost a guarantee that I'm always going to come across uh, a Windows XP box, which is going to let me do Eternal Blue or Blue Key. Those are great footholds. Uh, but really, it comes down to just my time and spending as a network admin doing everything the wrong way and learning how to exploit uh, Active Directory. Uh, whereas most of our engineers, we check for vulnerabilities and we attack based on exploits. Uh, I'm one of the engineers that I only attack using Windows. Uh, I may use one exploit to get my initial foothold, maybe on an ESXi machine. Uh, but from there, I'm just a malicious admin. Uh, so it's just years and years of Windows being updated that induced these vulnerabilities and made my life real easy. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the the upkeep on networks and systems is, is, is really difficult for a lot of organizations. And I think that that's asset management and making sure you know what all the pieces are on your network, you know, what version they are, what patch level they are, what configuration they are. Uh, it can get out of hand really quickly, especially for large organizations. But that's 
it's for me, that's kind of where the risks really lie in that form of an attack is you have something that's not patched or updated. Um, it hasn't been touched in a while. Uh, maybe it was completely forgotten. Um, I can tell you this. We, uh, I, I was pulling some machines out of our data center back a couple of years ago, and I found a, a Windows NT box uh, still running. So I pulled it out, and we we did our normal in the inventory, and we we got rid of it. Um, about six months later, we found out it was the PDC, the primary domain controller, and no one knew it <laughs> um, because they had upgraded the uh, the the domain, you know, a couple of years, and they just kind of forgot that box was still in the domain and it was still acting as a PDC. So, um, making sure that you, you kind of keep up on your on your stuff is 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 I think really critical. Um, and uh, it's also kind of difficult, you know, knowing where everything is at, keeping it, keeping it up to date. It can be a, a, a real problem, a real process for the organization. So we've, we've got some, uh, we've got some great people in the chat. Um, you know, we've got uh, Eddie and Michael and Don. Uh, we've got a couple of questions. And one of the questions was from Michael. And he asked about publishing a, a CVE vulnerability and, you know, if you've done it and kind of the process that you've done on that. What uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'll actually say I've got three career goals left. Uh, I've accomplished the majority of things that I want to do. And I have three career goals. One of them is to get a CVE associated with me. Um, the second is to speak at DEF CON. And the third is to steal a baby. Um, uh, so thank you for this question, because I just want to put it out to all our listeners. If anyone needs pen testing on a maternity ward and you have a, uh, a stand-in baby, maybe a fake one, I'll even bring it. I'm happy to steal it. Uh, we'll work it out. I'll give you a great deal. I just want to pen test a maternity ward and say that I could have stolen a baby. Uh, but wow. <laughs> it's, it's the dream. Uh, for the CVE, though, basically it's finding the exploit and then there's responsible disclosure and there's irresponsible disclosure. We're getting a lot of irresponsible disclosure now where people are just publishing a POC to Twitter and it just goes out and that's real bad for everyone. Uh, to actually publish a CVE is to reach out to MITRE or one of those organizations and say, hey, I have this bug. Maybe you've started a conversation with the vendor and you'll do this concurrently and say, hey, this is the exploit I found. The vendor has acknowledged it. And then MITRE working with you and the vendor will then say, um, let's assign a CVE. And then you'll do a responsible disclosure where you'll give the vendor time to patch it. And the vendor will roll out the patch and say, hey, 60, 90, 180 days, something like that. Give us time for our customers to recover and then release that. So that's kind of the whole CVE process. Yeah. And, you know, where, let me ask you, where do you find the CVs out there? You know, where, uh, where can people, if they're, they're interested in their, in their products, their tools or something they might be looking at deploying in their organization, where might they go and check to see if there are vulnerabilities? So there are a few places um, and that'll kind of lead me into uh, some patching procedure that I worked on when I was a, a network admin, I thought, okay, every three months, if I can patch once a quarter, I'm in a good place because uh, I can't afford the downtime. And then I moved into security. I said, okay, well, I need to patch every month. And if I can get everything patched in the month, I'm good. As a pen tester, I will be riding in the passenger seat of the car and searching CVE-2022-star on Google or on GitHub and getting exploits that are from that day, POCs, and using those on pen tests. So just understand that your attackers are on the bleeding edge uh, patch as quickly as possible. Uh, 
So the places where I typically start looking for exploits, exploit DB is a good one. Uh, that is the database that is kept up by offensive security. And you can search your product in there. There's an offline version of that that is uh, SearchSploit. It's built into Kali Linux. So if you want a version of whatever, you can do SearchSploit and then say Apache 2.4, and you'll get all the exploits associated with that. And they're kind of built in. Uh, GitHub's a great place. So I do CVE 2022 star or just CVE 2022. And that'll kind of get you the bleeding edge. A lot of time, those exploits are actually written, uh, all the comments are in Japanese or Chinese, and you're having to work out what the code's doing. Uh, Twitter's another great place. Um, and there's times where we'll just fuzz it. Uh, we might run into a web page or something strange on a pen test, and it may act really vulnerable or be really weird. We'll run into proprietary, proprietary stuff all the time, and we'll actually find exploits on the fly uh, that may not be released. So uh, talk about fuzzing a bit. Um, that's something that yeah. I don't think a lot of people are going to know right off the bat. So w explain real top layer. What, what's fuzzing? Uh, I always like to explain fuzzing as uh, when you actually look at the Python code, basically I write Python that says, here's a network stack and you're going to throw data at it. And uh, you can know, caps lock always looks like you're screaming and it's like you're screaming A's. And so basically I write a simple Python script that says for network stack, throw 8 billion A's at this port and see what happens. And then I'll run a debugger on the other side and see, did I trigger a crash? And when I trigger a crash, where did it crash? And then from, okay, now I've got a crash. Well, let's see where. And then you start doing uh, unique patterns. So it's like A, B, C, D, E, F. And you fire that in a sequence until you can actually see where the, crack, the crash is and then build your code from there. So fuzzing is your first step towards writing your vulnerability to get uh, remote code execution. So all of your remote code execution vulnerabilities started out as denial of service where it's killing a service. Yeah, I, I can tell you that when I go to a, a new website um, or if I'm doing something and I've never, you know, I've never used their tools before, I'll do a little bit of that just to see what it does and what kind of responses. And I am not a pen tester by any means, but I know enough to go, huh, I don't want to use this website. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I actually refused to go work at an organization. This was years ago for that very reason. I, uh, they told me I needed to input my social security number into the website and I went into the website and it's like, um, no. And I started taking a look at the code and I was like, Huh, and I threw some stuff at it just to see. And uh, I called them up and says, Hey, I don't want to put my data in this in this form. I'm happy to give it to you over the phone. You know, we can I can meet you in person. And uh, they said that they had to use the form. I says, Well, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You know, no thank you. It was a CISO position. I was like, No thank you. And I walked away. Uh, but it's a uh, it's something that, you know, somebody told me once years ago that, um, when you have a coder and they've built a, a product or they've built a, 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 a sub piece of software or a program or something, and uh, then you get a pen tester to come in and try things on it. And then the coder goes, well, why would they do that? Why would they put in a bunch of A's? Why would they put in just a hash mark? You know, And, and the reality is that, that's, that's what you do. You, you test that to make sure it doesn't do anything you don't want it to do because once it does, you can use that for your advantage. So... Uh, for those of you who uh, we were talking about CVEs earlier, and I do the same thing with our uh, 
with our coders, you know, anybody that does any sort of programming is I get them and I, I, I send them CVEs that I find about their, their stuff, whether it's SharePoint or a tool or whatever. It's like, Hey guys, you need to take a look at this. Oh, by the way, throw this into your form and see what it does. And this will explain why this is bad. So something to think about when you, when you're at an organization and you, uh, and, and you're, you're creating code, and you're deploying code, it's really good idea to have someone come and check that code out just to make sure that they can't do you know, malicious things against it. And it, you know, either spit out information that shouldn't or crash a system or give you access to a system. Absolutely. So uh, looking through some of the questions, um, the, uh, there was one up here that I wanted to, to ask about, um, you know, you're talking about the babies, um, you're going and stealing a baby or at least a, a, a baby like object. Let's say that you're going to steal a baby like object. Cause I, I know you would never actually steal a baby. Um, what happens? There's a LinkedIn user that asks, you know, what happens on plan B? So let's say you are doing a physical attack and you're in there and you're trying to get through something and, and all of a sudden you get caught. So let's say, uh, let's say campus security in my case, or, you know, uh, a hospital police or someone. And, and they're really, they, they stop you and they say, Hey, wait a minute, what are you doing here? What do you do? You know, that's a, that's a lot of adrenaline that may be pumping and you're trying to, and you get caught. What's uh, what's it, what's going through your head and what do you do for a plan B? Yeah. I'll kind of circle back to that kind of discussing our plan A, B, and C. Cause I want to talk about how we actually address physicals. Uh, I love physicals. And when you ask like, what are those things that I always do? If you give me any organization that says we're not going to pay you unless you get domain admin, but anything's on the table, I'm physically breaking in. Uh, it is just a guaranteed way for me to get execution in your network. Uh, we use a three-pronged approach, um, and there are two reasons why you'd actually break in. You have, are you testing controls or are you testing your people? So is it, is it an SE engagement or is it a controls engagement? Uh, and we use a three-pronged approach where we do a high, a medium, and a low-skill attack. So the high-skill attack is the guy that looks the part. He has the clipboard. He has a signature. He's done everything right. He knows your ISP. He knows which people do what in the organization. He has the box. He's got the magnet stuck on the side of the car. Uh, he's done his research. Uh, in our experience, we found that he actually gets flagged the most because he's the easiest to tear down. Uh, so the next person in our stack that we use is the medium skilled attack. Any idiot can actually walk in and just break in and say, hey, we did this. That's why we do this to give our customers a whole spread of here's where your organization's vulnerable. Uh, implicit trust as opposed to explicit trust. So our medium skill attack is maybe the guy has the right uniform. He's the Culligan guy. And he's got a heavy bottle of water on his shoulder and he's trying to carry that around. And he's just trying to get in, trying to grab a door uh, where he can. Uh, he usually makes it a little further because people just assume they don't have to interact with him. They see the water guy all the time. They see the UPS guy all the time. Do not for any reason impersonate the United States Postal Service. It's six <laughs> months in jail and a $10,000 fine. <laughs> Make sure I throw that out there. Don't ever do that. Uh, the part that I always play on a pen test, which I absolutely love, is I play the low-skilled attacker. Um, I have left a, a conference. I just got done speaking. I got in my car. I drove an hour. I didn't even change out of my alias polo. Uh, I walked into the bank, walked right past the tellers, right to the back room, sat down, and started just tapping away at the server. It was unlocked, looked at the cameras, dropped an IP-connected KVM, and the lady comes in and she says, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm with the IT people. Like, your Cox guy was just here. Well, I, I do know the Cox guy was just there because he was our guy, but 
uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm fixing this for your IT guy. And like, I don't know you. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Um, most of our team is six feet tall and uh, super intimidating. Um, so they will intimidate down. Uh, do you know who I am? Do you know who my father is? Like, I'm your IT guy. Get your boss on the phone. I'm not putting up with you. Our, our team is, uh, they're really good at that because they come from that position of authority. Me, I'm 5'10 on a good day, and I'm very unconfrontational. Uh, so the way that I deal with that is I ignore. Um, I listen, and then I ignore. Hey, you can't be plugging that in. And I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I shouldn't be plugging this in. And I continue plugging it in. And they're like, you can't be back here. Like, you can't be touching a Swift terminal. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. I should not be touching a Swift terminal. Um, but who's going to stop me? And so I just continue to keep doing what I'm doing. We had a goal on um, one of our pen tests where it was engage until like keep escalating until you are physically removed. And I tried my hardest. I did everything in me and could not get thrown out of this establishment. <laughs> okay. I, that, I hadn't heard that one before. That one's a good one. You were actually trying to get physically thrown out of that organization. That's great. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say after that. What? So, um, okay. Let's, let's talk about this for organization or for the people who are at organizations that's going to have a pen test. Um, all of that is wrapped up in the, uh, in the, the, the contract in the, the uh, rules of engagement that you have with the organization. So talk a little bit about that. Cause I want to make sure that everyone knows if they, if they're going to have a pen test, it may not be like that where someone's going to get, try to get physically thrown out, but there is a rules of engagement that they will need to, to, to make sure they have lined out for your safety and for their safety and make sure all the pieces. So give us just a little bit about a rules of engagement. So the rules of engagement is two pieces of paper. It's actually one piece of paper, but I copy it twice. And one of them goes in my backpack and the other one goes in my back right pocket. And the rules of engagement basically says, uh, well, that's my get out of jail free card. That includes my rules of engagement. It says Andrew Lim is allowed to use methods such as deceiving, lying, stealing, cheating to gain physical entry to exploit X company. Uh, so the rules of engagement basically define you can't threaten physical harm, which we'd never do. Sure. Um, you can't use, use romance scams. Uh, that's off limits. Maybe you can't attack the same person three times. Once you have three failures, you have to move on. Um, and that prevents you from just uh, really doing targeted spear phishing attacks. It makes you spread out. Uh, as well as what days you can attack during what hours. And your rules of engagement are part of any engagement, whether it be a physical, a social engineering, or a internal pen test. It basically defines this is the structure and the rules that you must follow uh, in order to stay within legal bounds. Yeah. And there's, there's sometimes that stuff is just off limits. You know, there may be certain networks that is off limits. Maybe that's a life safety network or some other sort of network where they, they come in and say, okay, we understand that normally this is, you know, what attackers go after, but there's a lot of risk to this. We don't want you to pen test it. And that would be in the rules of engagement, wouldn't it? Correct. Yeah, it basically defines scope and then scope will define rules of engagement. Right, right. And uh, for organizations that are thinking about getting a pen test and you're bringing in someone like Andrew, you know, talk to your general counsel. Um, you, you might have general counsel or external counsel 
and and make sure that you kind of put in the, the pieces for your organization that makes sense. Um, you know, where you're going to be at, how you're going to be doing things, what the rules of engagement for that company is, and what the, the end result is. Because, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you've done um, organizations all the way from mom and pop, you know, shops all the way up to, you know, high-end security, high-end safety type things. And they're all a little bit different. I mean, you, you the interaction is a little bit different. So you want to make sure you do the right thing for that organization, you know, what that organization needs, you know, in terms of security. Absolutely. So. We've uh, we've got a couple of questions here uh, from the from the audience, and uh, there was one about domains, and I want to go back and get that one because he was asking about, um, you know, this is from Robert uh, on the pen testing side. Uh, when you run in, what have you run into that has made getting domain admin more difficult that you don't see very often? So, when you're uh, when you're out there and you're trying to get into a system, you know, the domain admin. Yeah, it's really kind of that that the table stakes. If you, if you can get domain admin, you've got the organization at least you know part of their their domain. But what have you seen that has worked that really surprised you and prevented you from getting domain admin? Um, I'll tell you the best one, um, and then I'll tell you a few more stories. Uh, one of the things that got me and that will get everyone every time is good logging. Uh, the second that I pop domain admin, uh, the, the application they're using, and I don't make any money off of this, they're using an application called Lapide. And Lapide alerted them that one, a domain admin logged in in a weird way, and then a new domain admin, alias rules, was added to the domain. Um, and from there, my two accounts got ripped out. And then my third account that I had leveraged to go from individual user domain admin got ripped out and then my access to the box got destroyed because they had good logging they traced it back from uh this domain admin added this user alias rules domain admin was accessed from this computer these people are logging to this computer and we're going to quarantine this and so i went from this awesome attack chain where i'm ready to dump the entire database and get the big win to back to square zero <laughs> That's got to be frustrating when you get to that point and all of a sudden, thunk, and now you're, you've are you got to start over. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that was a great one. Uh, I've had malicious admins where uh, I said, hey, I've got this foothold. I'm just telling you because I don't want to kick this user off and interrupt his work. Is that okay? And 10 minutes later, that machine goes completely offline. Uh, that made it oh, difficult yeah. to get domain admin. Um, but please don't interfere in the pen test process because I do take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I could certainly see that. Um, I, I want to say that you and I, we had talked about a story where you had a network that was, that was so large that it just took forever. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah. Uh, so we work with a lot of big organizations that have been around forever um, and have a ton of IP address space. They actually had class A, B, and C networks, um, just huge. And so just when you thought you just scanned something uh, because they had a public range that was also kind of their private range, you also ran into like, oh crap, now there's 172 and there's a research network, there's a 192 network. And it was this giant nightmare of like, how do you even eat the elephant? Like a couple bites at a time. And I, I just lucked out and I found what I needed and I found the jump box. And I got my persistence on the jump box and I had to wait. Uh, I set all my booby traps. I disabled all the AV 
And I waited and I waited and nothing ever happened because they had changed procedurally what they did. Um, but then more so, I mean, I am knocking on domain admin's door, but it's a red team. So I have to be so quiet. Um, and when I do this, I position myself where I do kind of a, a walk, a crawl. And then the last two hours is a sprint where I hammer everything as fast as I can. Well, I'm getting ready for, hey, we need to engage for the sprint phase. And I get a call that says, we've implemented network segmentation and uh, we rolled out smart cards this weekend. And I went, <laughs> you, did, you did what? <laughs> so any accounts that I've compromised, I now have to use two of it. And I'm like, oh, by the way, we disabled RDP. So you can't use RDP now, which was my foothold. And so this required this most creative, uh, it was a, a proud moment of the amount of effort I had to do to actually pivot through all of this. I had to go out, rescan all the networks again, uh, dump credentials everywhere I could. Thank God I found one machine. It took one machine that had WDigest enabled, which allowed me to dump the credentials of a service account that thank God didn't have a smart card associated with it yet because they couldn't do it. And then I hit the problem of, well, I can't RDP how to get code execution. And the only thing that saved me there was uh, Windows Remote Management. I used WinRM and PowerShell Remoting to actually get my wins and dump NTS.dit, which is a great time. But still, my God, did it. It sucked the wind out of my, my sails. It was a, a great time for sure. Yeah. So while I would not otherwise advise this for more for a lot of organizations, Making significant infrastructure changes in the middle of a pen test is one way to make your pen testers hate you. So, yeah, I can I can certainly see that. Um, I would hope that the per they they implemented all those things to improve security. I mean, that was their intent. It just happened to coincide with the with the pen test. So, but yeah, and, and thinking about the large networks, the security by obscurity. Um, I've never been a fan. I, I'm not saying it doesn't work. But yeah, it, I, that's, uh, that's painful because that also makes management painful, you know, when you have so many networks and so many devices. So that's something to, to think about. It was um, to our benefit as well, because uh, while they had so much space that they had to monitor and manage, or we had so much space that we had to scan, they also had to monitor and manage that. And we, we littered the, the, uh, the organization with drop boxes everywhere that we could, just because you're expecting some to be found, you're expecting some to fail. And you want to change your change up where you can be. Uh, you may find that you're segmented on one Dropbox, but you're not on another. Yeah. Uh, and so, just because you might have that advantage, that security through obscurity, so too do the attackers. Right. No, absolutely. And I think uh, you know, for coming from the security side, I uh, I have to think about that as well. You know, think about what we have out there, where are things at, and me just trying to find things. It's interesting because I've. Uh, you know, uh, fans of the show know that, um, you know, when I was on last, I was talking about a security sock where I'm hiring students in and, uh, I, we've hired students. Um, they were supposed to start today, but we're in a snow day, so they couldn't come to, to the zinc hall, but they, uh, when I was talking to with them over the, their orientation, I was telling them about, you know, how many people here have run Nmap across a large network or about or a net in map and you know, everybody had done it. You know, I've got some really great technicians coming in to work for me. And I said, all right, now what's the biggest network you've ever run against? And it's like, Oh, well, 15, 20, 30 machines, maybe up to 200 or so machines. I was like, yeah, we've got a class B 
you know, so we're going to run Nmap, we're going to run Mascan, we're going to run these tools on a large network because there is a an efficiency that you have to learn to be able to do that effectively. So you can run it across 65,000 IP addresses to find all the IPs of all the machines that you want to do a vulnerability scan against. So uh, it is something for people to uh, to to look at a network and look at an enterprise wide network, a large network and figure out how to run against it. You know, it's not something you could, when I run a, an NMAP against my network, uh, if I do an all out, you know, hyphen A, you know, give me all information, it'll take days. You know, it just sits and runs and runs and runs. Um, and I've gotten it to where I can run it in a few hours by running, you know, some smaller scripts first, get the machines, then individually run. So, but it, it, it takes some, it, it takes some, some magic skill sets to know how to do that efficiently. Yeah, you mentioned Mascan, and that's something that we ended up, uh, we target services. Uh, so yep. Mascan does a, a fast scan, and we actually, instead of scanning for everything, we pick our vulnerabilities. If we're going to look for SMB, we scan for, we mask scan for just that port. Uh, so it's learning how to chunk up your network and figure out what you want to attack as you're attacking. Right. And that comes from experience, you know, where you've, you've done it once and you go, okay, that didn't work. That took too long to do. And you, you figure out how to do it in small pieces. You know, I think the, uh, the joke you said, you know, eat an elephant a bite at a time. And for those who've been in the tech field, they, they, they get that joke on both levels. Um, you know, that, that it becomes really important to, to, to chunk it off in little pieces and scan against that. And honestly, I encourage people to do that on the security side as well. You know, when you're trying to protect them, when you look at an entire network and you're trying to implement security controls, large networks are scary. You know, start chunking it off in small pieces and secure that that enclave, that small piece, and then another one and then another one. And eventually you, you've secured the whole network, but you've done it in small pieces at a time. And I tell people to do it from take your stuff that's most important. Let's secure that first. And then you start working your way out and you build that that onion, that layer um, of security controls. And it, it just makes it a little bit easier to to digest, you know, to, to understand it. So uh, we've got a question here from Michael about 2FA. And it kind of goes on to the, uh, um, you're talking about the domain creds and you're talking about deploying um, uh, smart cards and things. But he says, how do you secure your company accounts with 2FA? Uh, let me ask you, what have you seen be really successful in your organizations that do have 2FA or multi-factory in? What, what seems to work? Uh, I use a myriad of things. Um, the most important one is a good password manager. Um, and that prevents a lot of really interesting attacks. Uh, one that we've used in the past is, so use LastPass, right? Because when you go to a website, uh, it'll autofill if it's the correct website, but if it doesn't fit all the boxes, maybe they changed an A or an O or something, uh, LastPass won't autofill. So it's kind of that next step where you're, it'll make your user stop and think. And that's great because there are attacks that we use like Evil Engine X, where we do a proxy in the middle to actually bypass 2FA. And so that will get past that 2FA requirement. Um, further to that point, there's now one where we'll do a VNC session inside a JavaScript window. So inside a browser, it, it's a browser running in kiosk mode. It looks like a user's browser, but instead we're still key logging everything and then we can steal the cookie. So from the 2FA side, um, I'm still a huge fan of use your cell phone. Uh, and I'm, I like the uh, authenticator app on my phone or a hard token. 
those are the ones that I want to use. And I recommend anything that has external attack service have 2FA on. And everything in your life, put 2FA on it. Your Twitter, anything that represents you as a brand or a person or is tied to your money uh, or your reputation, have 2FA on it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I tell people all the time, it, it is the standard. You should have multi-factor on everything you do. Um, we, uh, we, we run with the authenticator app and things, you know, Google app, uh, the Google authenticator app, the Microsoft authenticator app. And, you know, I think those work really well. Um, I've used YubiKeys in the past. I've used, you know, a variety of things. Um, for me, um, I tell people, it doesn't matter what account you're dealing with, where it's a credit card, an email, a social media account, have multi-factor on there. Um, I can tell you right now, one of the things that I do at the university is I look at all the sign-in logs, um, especially all of the sign-in logs that were successful passwords but failed multi-factor. And when I go down through there, what that tells me is many times that password is compromised, but the multi-factor stopped it. So since they didn't have the multi-factor, they weren't able to get into the system. They weren't able to do anything bad. So that's something that, you know, you got to take into a uh, um, take into account because that is you've got to protect your systems. Absolutely. So uh, we've got just a couple of minutes left. We're getting some really great questions and I'm not able to get to all of them. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Andrew, you know, when you're uh, when you're when you're kind of thinking about your legacy um, and your legacy, what you do, if you say 40 years from now, um, what do you want to have written in Wikipedia about you, you know, about your, about your, your history, your legacy, your experience and what you've done other than stealing the babies thing, you know, that's something I, um, but what is it you really want to be there and in, in that, that historical thing for you? You know, honestly, I, I kind of got pushed into this role of uh, being a face and talking about this and people like to hear my stories and what I say, but I really don't need recognition. Um, for me, all my validation comes from being internal. Uh, the CVE thing, that's for me, that's a goal that uh, I set to say I made it, uh, not what anyone else did. And I, I like having a cool story. Um, but I guess that culmination of what I want my, my story to say on Wikipedia is, uh, uh, I want to be able to say that I always did what I wanted to do. I always had fun. Uh, I was the most interesting person at every party that I ever went to. Uh, but at the end of the day, all that matters to me is I'm having fun. Uh, I've had the opportunity to leave my current organization to make double the money. And I'm already, uh, I've got a well-paying job. I could make yep. double and retire at 40. And I just, it's for me, it's about the fun. Uh, if yep. all that my Wikipedia said was, he had the most fun any human could, I'd be happy. Yeah, well, that's great. Andrew, thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with us today. I think we had a great conversation, and uh, I hope everyone out there is uh, staying safe, staying warm. If it's cold in your area and, and when you're dealing with security, make sure that your primary goal is protecting people and you're doing the best job you can. Um, if you need to, uh, if you'd like to catch more episodes, we're on Voice America on the business channel. So if you guys... Uh, Catch us next week, same time, same place, and we'll talk with you soon. I hope everyone has a great afternoon and a great weekend. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget... 
You can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakim. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please.